All right, we're looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. So let's give our attention to God's Word. I guess I should go ahead and tell you that we're going to be considering tonight, we're going to talk about this passage, same passage next week also. Uh, So we'll be looking at, uh, focusing mainly on verses uh, 5 through 8. But let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, and the Bible says that mankind, that you and I are like the grass that withers and fade away, but that the Word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we, we need you to speak, and we need you to help us to hear. Would you cause your word to to go out and do what it's promised to do, which is to to accomplish its purposes, to not return void. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, open our ears so that we might hear you? We need you to do that. And when we ask it expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we as we look at this passage tonight, uh, it made me think of what I want to ask you as we kind of head into it. Uh, there was a it made me think of this commercial back in the uh, back in the '90s. It was for uh, Kellogg's. It was for cornflakes, and their tagline at the time was "Taste it again for the first time." You might have heard a preacher. You know, I think every preacher has to use this illustration at some point. So here's my turn. So basically, they were trying to get you, look, they were basically saying, look, you've probably had cornflakes, but we want you to try it again. Give it, a, give it another look. Give it another taste. Um, and that's what I want you to do tonight with this passage. Because this is one, if, you, if you've been around church at all, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard it a lot. And I, w- I want you to take a fresh look at it. I want you to try to come at it Try to come at it like you, like you, for the first time. Take a fresh look at it. Hear it for what it's saying, for the wonder that it is. Uh, this semester, right, if you've been with us, you know that we're going through the book or the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. And it's a letter that's filled with joy. Paul's writing to these, uh, to these Christians about the joy that he has in Christ, about the joy that they can have in Christ. And he's writing about this, this letter filled with joy about joy, even while he's sitting in prison. So each week, you know, we're, we've said our theme is we're looking at real joy in the midst of real life. And this week, Paul's showing us something about the humility, or we could say the humiliation of Jesus. And that there actually can be some joy, a lot of joy there. So before we begin, a couple things. Keep in mind that we're picking up 
in the sense we're picking up in the middle of Paul's argument here in this passage. Last week, if you were with us, you know that uh, we talked about how Paul called the church, he called believers to unity. He said you have to be together of one mind, like-minded, like-spirited. And he said the way that you will see unity come about is by humbling yourselves. Consider other people as more significant than yourself. And right after Paul calls believers to be humble, he gives the example of, of Jesus, which is what we're looking at tonight. And so let me also say this, that as we start, that this, is, this is one of the most, if, you can, if we can talk about it like this, this is one of the most beautiful and rich and deep passages in the Bible. I know, it may, you know, can you rank them like that? I don't know, but I think you, you get what I'm saying. Scholars seem to be unanimous in agreement that this was some sort of, this was some sort of hymn or maybe creed from the early church. That because of the style, the language, the way it's put together, that this seems to have been a song that they sung, that they sang, sung, whatever. That Paul is quoting. It's possible he penned it. Nobody really knows where it, where it came from, but uh, here it is. And so it's, it's obviously something that the church considered, the truth that it contains is something the church considered so important that they committed it to song so that they could sing it and recite it and, and sort of pound it into their hearts and their minds. And it really, in a sense, sums up Christianity. And I think it especially highlights the, just the wonder of Christianity. What makes it unique? And so again, I want you to hear it fresh like it's the first time. And I do, I do feel like I have to admit that in, in, a, in a particular way, I feel, I feel my inadequacies about preaching and, uh, you know, when you come to a text like this. Um, it just, yeah, it almost feels wrong, but we're going to trust that God works every week in spite of my inadequacies and that he's gracious in that regard. So our outline for tonight, it's a fairly rough outline. So loosely, okay, that's how we're going to look at it. We're going to break it up along three lines. Uh, we're going to look at um, seeing Jesus in the form of God, which the passage talks about. Secondly, in the form of a servant. And then thirdly and finally, in the form of a human. They're loose uh, headings. So first, in the form of God. You see in verse 6, Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. And look, I'll save you a lot of reading and scholarly nerdy work and tell you that essentially what Paul is saying, right, what does he mean by form? What does it mean to be in the form of God? That basically what he's saying is that Jesus, who has always existed, is of the same essence as God. No kidding. Literally almost every commentator I read said that it means that Jesus is of the same, quote, stuff as God. Technical term. But that's what it means. That Jesus is made up of the same stuff of God. That He is God. They share the same glory you can see uh, John 17, 5, which we'll, I think, reference in a little bit, tells us the same thing. There are other passages that point to this. So in other words, the Jesus that walked on this earth, he was and is 
God himself. He was the fullness. He, he had always existed and always was, is, and will be fully God. And while we could talk about tons of, of things that that means, this passage really is about Jesus' humility. And so I think it's important to see, we have to see who he is and where he came from to really, we have to see the context to really understand his humility. And so where did he come from? He comes from because he is God. He is equal with God. He has the same equal in power and glory. So that means that Jesus, for all eternity past, forever, had enjoyed the full privileges and the comforts of God. For whatever that means. It means he had enjoyed the perfect love of the Trinity forever. That he enjoyed the worship of angels. It means that he was perfectly comfortable. That he was immune to any sort of pain. It means that he was fully satisfied. He experienced complete and perfect satisfaction. He enjoyed the full glory of God. The Bible says that he dwells, that God dwells in light unapproachable. I don't really know what that means. But that's what Jesus had experienced. He was the agent of creation. He made everything that is. And he didn't lack for anything. So that's that's Jesus' story, so to speak. That's where he came from. He was in the form of God. Secondly, I want you to see that Paul says that he came, even though he was, was and is in the form of God, he's of the same essence, he comes in the form of a servant. You see verse 6 and 7, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And Now look, things get a little bit tricky here. Uh, this is, a, again, one of the most, in some sense, you know, one of the most popular, famous passages from the New Testament. And it's also one with, uh, with a lot of questions. What exactly does this phrase mean? And this one, the one we have here, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, is one that people debate a lot. What does it mean? What exactly, what is What's he grasping? Is it something that he doesn't have? On and on. There's all kinds of different possibilities. But I want to I pitch to you what I, what, I think, what I think is the best understanding of this. The word for grasped, the Greek word, at least the verb form, this is a noun, but the verb form, it most commonly, it shows up in the New Testament a good handful of times, and it, it means to snatch or to seize something. And it has the idea of of snatching it and and wanting it for yourself, for your own purposes. Uh, A couple of examples real quick. Matthew 12, 29. It says, uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder or snatch his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder or snatch his house. Right? Somebody breaking in and stealing your goods. Your, your stuff. They want it. Uh, 
shows up in Matthew 13, 19, John 6, 15, when it talks about the crowd comes and wants to take Jesus by force and make him king. They want to snatch him up and do what they want with him. So I think the best illustration of, of what, this really, what it means is one that we all have seen before and we see at our house pretty frequently. If you've been around kids, you've seen it. What do kids do? When they play, inevitably, younger kids, one of them's going to walk up to another one that has something and they're going to snatch it and they're going to say what? Mine, exactly. They're going to walk up, whether they want it or not, they want it now, they're going to walk up and they're going to snatch it and they're going to say, mine. Because they want it for themselves and they want to use it for whatever they want to do with it. And I think that's, that's what's at work here with what Paul's telling us. One scholar translates it this way, the whole, uh, the whole sentence. He says, it translates it this way, quote, Precisely because he was in the form of God, he did not regard this divine equality as something to be used for his own advantage. Does that make sense? That in other words, that Jesus looks at the fact, the fact that he is God, and actually because he is God, he does not look at his for lack of a better way to say it, godness, as something to, to, to grab hold of and say, this is mine and I'll do what I want to with it. It's for me. But rather, the opposite, that he, because he is God, he looks at his godness, his glory, all of his resources, at what, everything that that means, and as opposed for, for it to be something that he uses for himself, he uses it for others. That in a sense, that's what it means to be God. That it's a giving away. Alright, so this is somewhat of a side trail, but we're going to take it real quick. Where do children learn to do that? How does a little kid learn to snatch something and say, Mine! You could say, well, they learned it from an older kid. Well, where did they learn it from? Your, the parents aren't at home working with their kids on this sort of stuff. Right? Are you going to go, you're going to snatch it, and you're going to say, mine, practice. It doesn't happen. Where do they learn it? Well, they don't learn it, right? We all come into this world bent that way. And that's why, if I can say this, that's why that's such a good illustration. Because I think that's exactly, in a sense, what Jesus is talking about. Some people actually look at this passage and they say what Paul is doing, kind of his whole frame of what he's saying, is that he's paralleling the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. Because think about it. What do, what do people do? Right? What, what did Adam do in the garden? He essentially looked, you know, he was uh, built to be in the image of God, and he looked at, at God, at Godness, and he basically tried to snatch it, right? I want to be God myself. I want to do with, with, I want lordship and I want to do what I want to with it. And it's what you and I do. It's what it means to be a sinner. We grasp, right? We seize it, snatch it. It's mine. I want it. And what, it, and, but the second Adam, Jesus, comes along and, and shows us that it's actually exactly the opposite. 
That because He is God, what it means, in a sense, what it means to be God is to use His Godness not, not for my needs, I want it, but to give it. To use that for others. And so Jesus comes, came and He took the form of a servant. The God that made the universe. That when He decides to fix the problem of the broken world, he decides, I want to fix this. He shows up himself and does it. Think about that. He doesn't send somebody. He doesn't send a servant. He does it himself. He doesn't just sit on high and sort of wave a magic wand. He comes and he does it himself. He takes the form of a servant. I heard this story. I heard it from a guy named Ricky Jones. He attributed it to Brian Chapel. So there you go. Uh, I assume that it's true. He basically uh, tells the story of a, uh, a of a people, this tribe of natives somewhere in South South America, uh, that live high up in the mountains. And the way that they choose their king, the way they choose their you know yeah whoever rules them. It's actually, apparently, the, the male with the biggest thighs. There you go. Now, why in the world would that be the case? It seems pretty arbitrary. But they actually have some reasoning behind it. So evidently, they're, they're way up in the mountains. And to get water, they have to hike down significantly to the lowlands to get water. And so their, their reasoning is the person, the, the male that has hiked up and down the most times to get water for the community, the one that's therefore served the community the most, would have the strongest and therefore the biggest thighs. And so they choose that guy. And so they, uh, the story goes that uh, a new king had been chosen, the guy with the biggest thighs. He's the strongest at, at gathering, going down, up and down to get the water for the community. And he'd been king for a little while. And then one day his father comes to him and he says, your brother has fallen and he's broken his leg and he can't get back up. And the king says to his dad, what, what would you have me do about it? Because once you got to be king, you didn't have to go get water anymore. You stayed and ruled. He says, what would you have me do about it? And the dad says, you need to go get him. And he says, but if I go get him, I, I'm the king now. King doesn't go get water. If I go get him, the people will be left without a ruler. And the dad says, if you don't, you'll be left without a brother. Because nobody else can do it. Nobody else is strong enough. You are the strongest. And so the story goes that he takes off his kingly robe, whatever that might look like, and he hikes down and he puts his brother on his back. And he carries him back home. He went and did it himself. Because only he could do it. And so Jesus, right, you get the picture. Jesus comes in the form of a servant. Even though he was God himself and is. God himself, he comes and he, he fixes the problem himself. In the form of a servant. Thirdly and finally, I want you to see that uh, we, basically we're going to sort of narrow the scope 
the focus in on what it looks like to be a servant. And Paul says that he comes in the form of a man. And so this is the time in particular that I want you to, I want you to forget I want you to forget what you've heard uh, about all this before and kind of come at this fresh. I want you to think about the fact that this is how God decides to show up on earth. Even the fact, like we've talked about, even the sheer fact that he came to earth at all is, is amazing. But think about how he came. He comes as a man. All right, let's think about it this way first. If you were the greatest being ever, and you were going to show up and fix the world, you're going to be the hero, how would you do it? How would you show up? Because I bet if you're honest, it would not look like this. It made me think about uh, LeBron James and the decision. Are you familiar with this? 2010, LeBron James. LeBron James is an NBA basketball player, if you're... Let's sit down and talk if you don't know that. So in, in 2010, he, he, used to play for the, he used to play for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now he does again. He used to play for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, he had to decide where was he going to go uh, as a free agent. And he was, without question, far and away the best basketball player on the planet. And so wherever he chose, their basketball problems were instantly solved. You expect anything less than a championship literally would be failure. So where's he going to go? He plans a, uh, he has a television special, which he no doubt deeply regrets. He has a television special to reveal his decision. And he says, famously, he says, I'm taking my talents to South Beach, to Miami, Miami Heat. I mean, think about that. He, King James, right? Certainly no accident. You get it. King James says, like, he's the hero. And that's how, he, that, that's how he shows up. He announces himself so that everybody knows it. I'm, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. And then what happens when he gets there? They throw an enormous party. And they've got Chris Bosh and a Dwayne Wade and LeBron James. And, they've got, and they, you know, they announce them. They've got smoke machines, lights going off. I, I watched it the other day, you know, the couple minutes of it. The announcer carried out his name for 10 seconds. Think about that. He's an NBA basketball player. And he shows up with this just enormous show. So what would it look like if you were going to do it? Would you show up? Would you show up and just sort of shock and awe everybody? Would you overwhelm everybody with your, with your charm or with your strength or, or with your power? Would you make them afraid? How would you do it? Think about what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't just the best basketball player in the world, which is awesome. He's God. This is how God shows up. He becomes a man, a real man. And so what I want you to see here is that he comes in, God shows up in humility. Because he doesn't just show up as a man, which would be amazing. He, he doesn't show up as a grown man, which is at least how I would have done it. 
He shows up as a baby. Think about this. The word of God becomes speechless. He shows up as a baby. He's born to a very poor family. Right? Being born in the barn and having a feeding trough for your crib, that's not, that's not quaint. That's just poor. He's born in a really small town, in a country that is, basically doesn't matter politically, to people that were oppressed. If you think about it, he borrowed basically everything he needed in life. So many of his miracles were done basically in secret. And a lot of times he even asked people to not tell. He shows up in humility. He wasn't a showman. Right? Think about his very first miracle. Right? Even if you did the whole baby thing, poor family, his, now it's miracle time. And what does he do? He makes wine at a wedding for some no-name, you know, insignificant-to-history couple. And he doesn't even really get the credit, at least at the time. The groom got the credit for it. He hung out and he lived not just with people, which is amazing, but with the bottom of society. Who would you hang out with? Like I'm telling you, I would hang out with the coolest people on the planet and show them just how much cooler I was. Or the most powerful people and show them just how much powerful or the smartest people. Jesus hung out with, with the bottom rung. He hung out with sick people a lot. Poor people, prostitutes, immoral people. That's who Jesus hung out with. It's incredible humility. He was always... Jesus prayed a lot. Takes a second for that one to kick in, to catch on to that. Jesus, God himself, shows up to save the world. And in his humility... He's dependent on his father. He sneaks off by himself and, and he has to pray. He's humble. He was always directing the glory to God, the father. He was patient and he taught people. Think about the humility that it would take to, to, to be patient and to have to teach the people that ought to just fall down and worship you and keep your word perfectly. He's got to teach them about who he is and what his law's like. Think about the humility of loving his disciples day in and day out while they said and did stuff that was just so ridiculous. And yet he's so patient and he's so humble. And then you get the picture of him literally taking the form of a servant when he, when he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around himself and he bends down and he washes the feet of all of his disciples, even the ones that were going to sell him out. That was a job that it was reserved for only the lowliest of servants. He comes in humility. And look, what I want you to think about real quick before we move on, I just want you to think, reflect on the fact that this is God. That's what God is like. That's who he is. Yes, he's holy and he's just, but he's humble. And so, is that attractive to you? Because I think if you see it for what it is, this is a God that you can approach. 
This is a God that... The, the God of the Bible is not a God that looks from on high and says, you need to figure it out. You need to get it straight. You figure it out or else. But He's a God that moves towards you. That comes in humility. And then, of course, He comes in His humility. He let Himself be arrested. He lets Himself be killed. And that leads us to the, uh, this little second section that I want to talk about very quickly. Uh, that a big part of His humility, coming in humility, is that He came and He suffered. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 talks about. He had all the glory and comforts of heaven, but he humbled himself. And not just became a man and sort of went through the motions, but he humbled himself and he suffered. His family was on the run for the earliest part of his life. Uh, It seems his dad died when he was really young. His hometown didn't accept him. His own family thought he was crazy. Every single one of his friends abandoned him in the end. He suffered the hatred of other people. Uh, With some frequency, his own people tried to kill him, and then obviously ultimately did. He suffered temptation from the devil himself. He felt the pain of having one of his good friends die. And he felt the pain of all the grief that that caused his other good friends. He suffered the general pain of, of a broken world. He suffered being, he knows, he knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty. He knows what it feels like to be sick. He, he suffered the bitterness of loneliness and betrayal. He suffered the pain of looking into the future and being afraid of what it held. He suffered the grossest injustice the world has ever known. His own fake trial. He suffered being beaten beyond recognition in the humiliation of that process. And look, I just want to throw this in here. The whole time, it's not like he was unaware of the glory that he used to have. Right? This all comes, this is all against a backdrop. Right? John 17, 5, Jesus prays and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus was vividly aware of how painful and how not glorious this was. And obviously it culminated in what we see in verse 8 that he suffered death on the cross. And again, try to hear that for the first time. Because, of course, Jesus died on the cross, right? Jesus died for my sins, died on the cross. Sure he did. But the cross was the most heinous way to die. I want you to hear this. I have a quote. This is from the, this is from the ESV study Bible notes. I went to four years of seminary to quote the ESV study Bible in a sermon. But it was really good, okay? I'm not above it. It says, Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity. A public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of a person. It, 
it not only hurt a lot and ultimately killed you, it just broke you. And look, here's what you have to understand. That in a sense, the, the physical and emotional sort of aspect is in a sense just a taste of how horrible it was for Jesus. Because it was far worse than that. Because of the reason that Jesus experienced and suffered the cross. The reason he was obedient. And the reason is, uh, in Jewish law, it actually says that a man that is hung on a tree is cursed by God. That's part of the humiliation, part of why so many of the Jews could not, you know, you can't wrap your mind around the fact, like, if he's obviously not the Messiah because he, he got hung. Anyone hung is cursed by God. The Bible says that. But Paul makes it clear to us in Galatians 3, 3.13 that that's exactly what's going on. He is the Messiah. He is cursed by God. Or I should flip that around. He is cursed by God and he is the Messiah. Paul says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus' humiliation and his suffering, it all culminated in God placing placing the sin of his people on top of Jesus and, and taking out all of his wrath onto Jesus, onto his son, so that Jesus experienced the full weight of it and as mysterious as it is and as much as I don't understand it, that, that Jesus suffered the sep- being separated from his father because he was punished as the problem. And he did it. He did it to save us because he loves us. And I want to end with this thought. That word that we talked about earlier for snatching, it actually shows up in one other sort of vein in the New Testament. Uh, it's, uh, it gets used of God in a handful of places, snatching people that he loves. Think about that. Acts 8, 2 Corinthians 12, Revelations 12. Uh, and the one I want to quote to you is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, right? Will be snatched away, same word. We who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Right? You see what that's saying? That, that Jesus lays down his glory... He humbles himself and he suffers. Also, he can snatch you up and pull you to himself and say, Mine. You are mine. That's why he does it. And there's joy, deep joy, in his humility. So much so that it could even cause us to begin to be humble. So do you know, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus that, that came in humility? He's offered to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we have in a unique way plumb, <clears throat> plumb depths that we uh, in and of ourselves have no business treading. But you are gracious. You are humble. Uh, and you allow us, you bring us in. 
Father, would we understand the humility that you have, Jesus, that you are, that you brought, that you came and suffered. Would we understand that? Would it motivate us to be humble? Would it, would it transform us, we pray in your name. Amen.